From the studios of WORQ in Wisconsin, this is the Stand Up For The Truth podcast. Today's issues, overlooked headlines, and biblical observations, equipping the remnant around the globe. Got your sword handy? This is Stand Up For The Truth. First day of August. First day of August, Mary. It is. One more month of uh, summer left here in Northeast Wisconsin. Stand Up For The Truth. Crash Cottle over here pushing the buttons when I need to. And Mary Danielson back in the studio live with us today. <laughs> Good to be here. I can't believe it's August already. Uh, I know all the seasons have the same amount of time, but it doesn't seem that way because it seems to me like time is accelerating somehow. And I've always been really fascinated by the subject of time. I've looked into the biblical concepts of before the foundation of the world, from the foundation of the world, and you got eternity future and other such concepts. And I know as mere mortals, uh, we can barely grasp the idea, but God saw fit to put some fascinating scriptures in front of us so we can at least ponder them. So I highly recommend, if you are fascinated by that as well, that you undertake a study for yourself on what the Bible says about time and eternity. Meanwhile, my scripture passage is Psalm 90, 10 to 14. Speaking of time, the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Acknowledge the Lord with me today. Lord, we just thank you and praise you for another day to serve you. Uh, your love is better than life itself. Uh, and I pray that you would help us understand more and more the height and the depth and the breadth of that love and how we can be vessels filled to overflowing with your spirit uh, so that we can represent you um, correctly to a lost and dying world. Lord, we know how late the hour is. So we lift up our guest, Bill, to you and his ministry, his family, and every need. And we pray you'd give him increasing opportunities for ministry in these times. Uh, we thank you ahead of time for all of your provision and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, William Federer is my guest today. He's a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, president of AmeriSearch, Inc., a publishing company dedicated to researching America's heritage. Bill's American Minute radio feature is broadcast daily across America and via the Internet. His Faith in History television airs on the TCT network on stations across America and via DirecTV. And you can catch those on AmericanMinute.com. And he has made dozens of radio and television appearances. That's probably a low ball number there. Speaking engagements, many books, including his first book, America's God and Country Encyclopedia of Quotations. And that has sold over a half million copies. Uh, his works have been quoted by authors, politicians, leaders, journalists, teachers, students, and in court cases. Bill has a remarkable amount of history about America, not just America, in his head and an AmericanMinute.com. It is very impressive. Bill, welcome to Stand Up Today. Mary, great to be with you. Good. We're so glad you could make it. Um, describe for us what is an American Minute and how those came to be. How there, how many are there? I know this is a, a big question. Uh, and is there a subject you have yet to cover? Because I don't see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, so I've written 
30 different books, and my uh, wife had the idea to do a short little one-minute radio spot. And so I would have one for every day of the year, something that happened on that day, Hmm. and then I would always try to weave in uh, the role that faith played in it, you know, so I have battle of the bulge, but then there'll be Franklin Roosevelt will give uh, an address where he'll talk about, you know, uh, we'll gain the inevitable victory. So help us God, you know? Uh, so I'd go through the entire span of history. So Lewis and Clark and Apollo 13 and ancient Assyria and ancient Romans and ancient Israel and, uh, you know, World War One. Sergeant Alvin York uh, captures, uh, you know, 132 Germans uh, single-handedly and, and gets the Congressional Gold Medal. And uh, then he starts a Bible school. During the Revolutionary War, you had the Continental Congress declaring days of fasting and prayer, and George Washington ordering his troops to observe the days of fasting and prayer, and then. Uh, things would happen. The rivers would rise uh, to uh, allow the um, uh, stop the British from being able to chase the Americans. Fogs would come in, allow Washington soldiers to escape. Mm. Um, and so we actually put together a series of books called Miracles in American History. Then we, um, oh, so then I'd have people say, well, can you send me the transcript of the radio spot? And I would first mail them out and then we started emailing them out and then it turned into an email list. Hmm. And then since you're not limited to 60 seconds, uh, the email would grow a little bit longer and get into more depth. And then we would uh, have a website. So it's called AmericanMinute.com, and we post them on the website and there's a little search feature up in the upper left hand corner where you can type in a word and it'll pull up all the, past American minutes that have that word in it. Um, so it's a, a, a way to reintroduce uh, history. Mm-hmm. One of the quotes I love is from Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who was a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian on John F. Kennedy's staff. And the quote is, history is to the nation what memory is to the individual. So if you've ever met an individual who has lost their memory, maybe they have Alzheimer's. It's sad. They forgot who they are. They forgot who you are. You can really, if you wanted, you could take anything away from them. Well, we sort of have national Alzheimer's. Here we are, the freest country that planet Earth has ever seen in 6,000 years of recorded history. And we forgot who we are. We forgot how we got here. Mm-hmm. And we're just sitting there like an Alzheimer patient, staying, staring off into space. And, and they're just taking our freedoms away. Mm-hmm. And when you tell the history, it's like, okay, here's a big picture. From the beginning of time, the, most, the default setting for human government is gangs is gang leaders. And when a gang leader gets powerful enough, we call him a king. And it's a hierarchical system. If you're friends with the king, you're more equal. If you're not friends with the king, you're less equal. You're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason. Or you're a slave. And as the centuries go on, these kingdoms get bigger. Because with military advancements, kings can kill more people. So instead of Cain killing Abel with a rock, uh, you have... The, uh, you know, Greeks with their bronze weapons or the Romans with their iron weapons or the uh, Alexander the Great with the phalanx spears and the Muslims with the scimitar sword and the Mongols with the composite bow where they could shoot 100 yards, but it was only a third as big as an English longbow so they could shoot it on horseback. And, mm. 
and, and finally the Chinese invent gunpowder and, and the weapon improves, but as that same fallen nature, it can kill and able, and these kingdoms keep getting bigger. Mm-hmm. And with technological advancements, kings can track more people. Um, you know, the Chinese had a way that they invented of counting with knots and ropes, and then an abacus with rods and beads that you would slide back and forth, and then tokens and dishes, and then markings in the tokens. And, and then uh, Augustus Caesar wanted to have a worldwide tracking system. It was called the census. If, if he could have had 5G and satellites and cameras, <laughs> he would have been tempted to track people that way. Mm-hmm. And anybody that can do plotting can see that at some time this is going to max out on a global level. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says wheat and tares grow together till the harvest. Mm-hmm. And so you, I tell people history is not prophetic, but it is predictive. Mm-hmm. And this selfishness of Adam uh, in Eve sinning and Cain killing Abel, it's just magnified through military advancements and technological advancements and also money, uh, right. right? So you get these globalist BlackRock State Street Vanguard, and they've got trillions of dollars. And what are they pushing? A globalist World Economic Forum system. Yeah. Uh, and so the uh, – uh, and, and it's you look back in history, if any of these dictators hadn't have died, Genghis Khan. I mean, he killed 30 million people from Korea to Hungary. Attila the Hun had an army of a half a million people wiping out cities of Europe. Six million died in the Napoleonic Wars. You know, 80 million died in, in the Communist Party in China. And if, if any of these dictators hadn't died, any one of them would have been happy to be the Antichrist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so no that kidding. sense, death is a blessing and the devil has to start from scratch again. But you, you zoom out and you see, hey, the norm is uh, a gang. And the gang leader is, everybody wants to curry up to his favor. And, and then you have ancient Israel. So around 1400 BC, they come out of Egypt. And for 400 years, they do not have a king. I mean, here are people that have been slaves for four centuries. They can't even read. And suddenly they get downloaded. This most unique form of government with no king. And it worked for 400 years. And it was based on every single citizen being taught the law and personally accountable to God to follow the law. So you're about to steal. Nobody's around. You know you can get away with it. And then you think, God's watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable in the future. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in your head called a conscience. If everybody in the country believes this, you can maintain complete order with no police. (laughs) Maximum liberty. And this system worked for four centuries until what? Till the priest stopped teaching the law. You think they did? Yeah, here's Eli, the high priest. His own sons are sleeping with women in the very tent where the Ark of the Covenant is. Mm -hmm. And then you have uh, a Levite priest with a silver graven image in the house of a guy named Micah. And the tribe of Dan comes along and steals the graven image, and they tell this Levite, come along with us, and you can be a priest to our whole tribe. And you're like, what's this Levite doing with a graven image? Isn't it one of the commandments? You're not supposed to have them. And then the terrible story of a Levite with a concubine. The law says the Levite's to marry a virgin of his own tribe. Here he is with the woman he's not even married to. He's not following the law. And the poor girl gets raped to death, and by the time you're grossed out, you read this line, every man did that which was right in their own eyes. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the priest stopped teaching them what was right in the Lord's eyes. And so the self-government system fell apart, and they all go to Samuel the prophet, and they say, we want to be like the other countries. We want a king. And Samuel cries, and the Lord tells him, they did not reject you. They rejected me. Mm-hmm. And so uh, 
So anyway, so that's ancient Israel, and it was studied by the founders of colonial New England. And so you had the, them teaching, what, Hebrew at Yale and Harvard. Wow. And Yale, to this day, has Hebrew characters on its coat of arms. Um, and so this uh, idea of kings, so in Europe, the kings looked to the Bible for their authority, but they looked to the, the King Solomon part. The Calvinist Puritans that founded New England looked to the pre-King Saul period of Israel's history, this 400-year period where they have no king, and it worked because every citizen was taught the law and personally accountable to God to follow it. So King Saul, in a sense, is the divider between England and America. Hmm. And um, so America's founders looked back to ancient Israel as a model of how you can have millions of people and no king. And it works because every citizen is taught the law and personally accountable to God to follow the law. And... Um, so uh, I've written several things about how our founders uh, were influenced by ancient Israel. And uh, again, AmericanMinute.com is my mm-hmm. website. Yes, I see this one here. Ancient Israel inspired pilgrims experiment in self-government. Very, very interesting, very, very detailed. And I'm thinking what you're, you were talking about, uh, you know, collective Alzheimer's. I know Israel had collective Alzheimer's a few times. But also the thing I've noticed in America is when you have that, you have no more have context for anything that's going on. And so you can go back and rewrite and you can revise history because it doesn't really matter what actually happened. And I think, do you think context is the problem here and that that is the end game of just not having a collective memory in this country? Yeah, there's there's actually a communist tactic called deconstruction. Hmm. And it's where you, you separate a people from their past, get them into a neutral where they don't remember where they came from, and then you brainwash them into the future you have land for them. So it's a drive neutral reverse. So um, it's uh, a sales technique. If I were a toothpaste salesman, the first thing I do is I tell you negative things about the toothpaste you're currently using. (laughs) You're still brushing with that stuff. Haven't you read it'll eat the enamel off your teeth? Ooh, you're repulsed by it. (laughs) Now you're in a neutral, you're open-minded, what are all the toothpaste out there? And then uh, I give you my pitch for this brand new tartar controlled breath freshener toothpaste. So they go into the classrooms and they tell the children negative things about the founding fathers. They took land from Indians. They sold people into slavery. They were bad. They were chauvinists. And these kids are like, ooh, repulsed by them. Ignoring the fact that the founders, for all their faults, gave you a present. And that present is you get to be in charge of your life. And all of us together are in charge of the country. And we're not ruled by a government mandate that uses fear. It's the people ruling ourselves bottom up. Forget all that. And so these kids are repulsed by the founders, and now you have the kids into a middle, neutral, open-minded period, and then you give them your pitch for socialism or LGBT trans agenda or Sharia Islam or anything else. And, um, and then Europe went through this. So Europe was Catholic and then Protestant, right, with cathedrals mm-hmm. and uh, for a thousand years in Jewish neighborhoods. And, and then Europe had the French Revolution. And they turned churches into temples of reason, and they uh, didn't want done in the year of the Lord, so they made 1792 the new year one. And uh, they had the French Republic timetables, and they didn't want a seven-day week because it went back to the Bible, so they came up with a 10-day week, uh, a decade week. And then each day had 10 hours, each hour had 100 minutes, each minute had 100 seconds. And they used it for about 15 years in France until Napoleon scrapped it. And um, But they said 10 was the number of man because you counted with 10 fingers. 
So they made every measurement in France divisible by 10. They called it the metric system. Maybe that's why I never really liked the metric system. Uh, yeah, that was my next then, question. Yeah, because Americans aren't interested in the metric system. But it was this idea in France to de-Christianize itself, hmm. and it turned into chopping off the king and queen's head. It doesn't get any better. They chop off the heads of the royalty. It doesn't get better. They chop off the heads of the wealthy. You have money. We don't. You're bad. Then they chop off the heads of the businessmen and farmers. You have food and supplies. We don't. You're bad. Then they chop off the heads of the hoarders. You got extra stuff. We don't have enough. You're bad. Then they chop off the heads of the uh, clergy because they were speaking out against all the head chopping off stuff. And then they chopped off the heads of the former revolutionaries, the ones that used to chop off heads if we got tired of it. 30,000 people had their heads chopped off in Paris, France. Wow. And um, and so they, uh, they didn't have God. Right. Mm -hmm. They said there mm -hmm. is no God. So who decides what's right and wrong? The group, the collective, the state, mm -hmm. the fraternity, mm -hmm. uh, the mob. And so that's where mm -hmm. socialism came from. So it's the collective. Wow. So the motto of the French Revolution was liberty, equality, fraternity. Wow. Liberty is experienced individually. Fraternity is their word for socialism, the collective. And equality can be understood two ways. In America, it was equal treatment before the law. But in France, it was everyone having an equal amount of stuff. And if the fraternity, the collective, the group, thinks you have too much stuff, it can trample your individual liberty because the benefit of the group outweighs the benefit of the individual. So it, it tramples your individual liberty, confiscates your stuff, redistributes it, and then kills you. And so the French Revolution is the basis for every socialist revolution since. Wow. You kill off the old order, you confiscate sure. all their stuff, and you give it to your supporters. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. But America, we looked back to ancient Israel for the model, and it's you get blessings from God, and you voluntarily share them with your neighbor because you're doing it as unto God. Mm -hmm. Right. Wow. This is Stand Up For The Truth. You're listening to Bill Federer today. We're talking about um, uh, many, many different subjects here. AmericanMinute.com. Um, Bill, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, what a perfect website for homeschoolers. What an incredible resource because the public school kids, uh, you know, won't, won't be interested in it. But I, I know that the homeschool kids and Christian families would be, um, would, would you recommend this for, for kids that are being homeschooled? Because it is very, very thorough. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have lots of homeschoolers that use these to, uh, supplement and, uh, their uh, classes and their curriculum, and I'm even working with uh, Charlie Kirk and Turning Point Academy, Great. and they're turning some of my stuff into curriculum as well. Wow, that's fantastic! And, um, yeah, getting it into you know home schools and Christian schools and wow. so forth. That's good. To, that's good to hear. Uh, we have about uh, ten minutes in this segment, and I do want to mention uh, the ninth of Av, which was uh, last week. Um, and the Jews have recently ended three weeks of mourning uh, with the commemoration also called Tisha B'Av. Um, it's not really a holiday or a feast. It's a memorial day that's very unique on the Jewish calendar. And it's a culmination of a season of mourning over the loss of the Jewish temples. But there's way more to it than that, right, Bill? It, co it goes way back um, to Joshua and Caleb. And can you give us, uh, there are quite a few interesting events on the 9th of Av on the Jewish calendar. Could you start us off with Joshua and Caleb? Right. So the uh, Julius Caesar is the one who switched the Roman Empire from the lunar calendar hmm. to the solar calendar and uh, come up with a 365-day year, and 
they changed a month, named the, the old fifth month after himself. It used to be Quintilius, and they changed it to July after Julius Caesar. And the next emperor, Augustus, turns the names a month after himself, August. And uh, Julius Caesar moved the beginning of the year from the spring equinox, which would be like March 22nd, to uh, January 1st. And so when we have the new year starting on January 1st, that goes back to Julius Caesar. And, uh, but the uh, Hebrews used a lunar calendar, and they gave the, the months different names. And so uh, the one was the month of Av, and the ninth day of Av is one that uh, has uh, a, a history in Israel that uh, is uh, sort of tragic in the sense that the 12 spies went into the promised land for 40 days. They come out and they said, it's great land. And yes, it's everything God promised, right? There's, you know, plenty and there's honey and cows and milk. And, but 10 of the spies say there's giants in the land where grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way we can conquer it. They spread this fear and, Joshua and Caleb run out there and rip their garments and says, no, the, the, the Lord's taken away of the enemy's protection. We can conquer this. We can do this. Don't rebel against the Lord. Well, the people, they got into fear. It's one of the first instances of psychological warfare where you defeat an enemy in their mind so they never even make it to the battlefield. And uh, they say, well, let's stone Moses Let's elect another captain. Let's go back to Egypt and put ourselves back into slavery. And God was so mad at them that he had them wander for 40 years in the wilderness till that whole generation died off, and then he brought them into the promised land. But the day that they rebelled was the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av, A-V. And, uh, but then you have, they get into the promised land. For 400 years, they don't have a king. And then they get King Saul, who turned into a tyrant and killed most of the priests and tried to kill David. And then King Saul is gone. You have King David. And uh, he collects all the wealth to build the temple. But God tells him because he was a man of war, he's not going to build it. But he collected all the stuff, and he actually designed it. And he left all that to Solomon, and Solomon built it. And so uh, this beautiful temple of Solomon's, uh, lasted for uh, hundreds of years. And uh, finally, when Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonians in 587 B.C., uh, the temple was destroyed, and the tribe was carried away into captivity. The tribe of Judah was carried away. And, of course, previously the ten northern tribes had been carried away to Assyria. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but the, the date that the beautiful Solomon's temple was destroyed was the ninth day of Av in the year 587 BC. Very tragic day. Well, the uh, Jews returned from Babylon, Cyrus of Persia, and they rebuild a second temple uh, built around 516 BC. And it was expanded by King Herod in 19 BC. And that was the one that Jesus and the apostles saw. and But then they, they rejected Jesus, and <clears throat> the Romans uh, had uh, surrounded Jerusalem with Vespian, 
And then when the emperor dies, Vespian leaves his son in charge and he goes and becomes the emperor. And there's like two years where the Jews could have got their defenses up, but instead they start bickering with themselves. Mm. Three different factions. They divide the city of Jerusalem into the three, and they're warring with each other. And it's not until the Romans return and surround the city that they decide to make up with each other. But it's like, <laughs> you just wasted the two years. You could have been working on your defenses, but mm-hmm. instead you were. And, um, and so Titus conquers Jerusalem in 66 AD. And that's when um, the temple uh, is destroyed. So Rome's destruction of Jerusalem began in 66 AD. And, um, and then finally, uh, Nero committed suicide. The successor was Galba. Then mm-hmm. the successor was Othar. The successor was Vitalius. Vespian was the next emperor. And um, actually, excuse me, it was 70 AD that the the Romans finally broke through the wall. So they had initially began to attack Jerusalem in 66 AD, <clears throat> but it was in 70 AD when they finally break through the walls. And on the 9th of Av, which... Now that we have a Roman calendar, it would have corresponded to the Roman calendar of September 8th and 70 AD. But on the Jewish lunar calendar, it was the 9th of August. Okay, okay. That's when the, the temple was destroyed. Over a million Jews were killed in the conquest. <clears throat> and then the ones that were captured were <clears throat> excuse me, brought into a coliseum for sport and killed. Um, and then... And then the Romans decided to hunt down and kill all the remaining descendants of the royal line of David. That's so very never, interesting ever, to me. That is very interesting to me. So there are no descendants of David alive today, correct? No. Okay. Um, that's <clears throat> excuse me. That's what these Romans specifically did. Okay. They hunted them down, and then you have uh, Trajan, and then Hadrian, and, and he was around. <clears throat> excuse me around 135 or so AD. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yes. And then I noticed Trajan decided to destroy the temple Mount, uh, put up a pagan temple to Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he forbade Jews from coming inside of the city. And he said, the problem is their law. So he tries to destroy every copy of the law he can find. And, and so he make, again, make sure that there's no descendant to David left and, uh, and he renames the whole area Palestine. Hmm. So when you come up with, oh, Palestinians, Palestine, where did mm-hmm. that name come from? That came from uh, Hadrian. He's the one who decided to try to wipe out the uh, history of Israel. Well, and Rome experienced a lot of chaos because those four emperors, uh, Nero committed suicide, Galba was assassinated, Otho committed suicide, Vitellius was executed, and then... Um, the the um, volcanic eruption and Pompeii was destroyed. Rome thousands of Romans are buried alive, and then Rome caught fire. There was a plague. <laughs> God didn't let them get away with any of it. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of interesting. It's like they attacked God's people, right? And what was the response? Well, mm-hmm. it wreaked havoc on on Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Emperor Vespian, who was the first one to attack. Uh, Jerusalem, uh, he got an illness in 79 AD, and he finally died. And uh, his last words were, oh, dear, I think I'm becoming a god. <laughs> <laughs> because they would deify, you'd have the Roman Senate would make somebody a god. It's like, really? Yeah, you know, right. His son, uh, 
Titus becomes the next emperor, and that's when Mount Vesuvius explodes in 79 AD. And uh, I went to Pompeii back in college. I went to school in Europe. And we went through where the, the poisonous volcanic gases came down and first suffocated them all. And then the ash came down and buried them all. And so you have uh, these mummified bodies in their their mouths open and gaping and in these contorted um, and, but they're preserved because of this ash. And it's like, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is the same Titus that destroyed Jerusalem and mm-hmm. set fire and took all those treasures. And this went off. And then after that, the city of Rome caught on fire oh. and burnt down the, Temple to Jupiter and the Pantheon and Pompeii's mm. Theater. Then a plague breaks out. <laughs> they can't get a break, can they? We're going to take a break here shortly, uh, Bill. Really enjoying your history here. We're talking to Bill Federer, uh, AmericanMinute.com, and we're talking about the Ninth of Av. And I want to tease, there's a little bit more to that coming up in, in more modern history. Uh, so um, if you're up early in the morning, Q90FM.com has uh, two-minute warnings at 5.50 a.m. Central. And you can also catch them on the archives page on demand, twominutewarnings.org, the number twominutewarnings.org. We'll be back shortly with more from Bill Federer. Stay with us. Our social media pages are shadow banned. Thanks for your prayers and sharing our posts at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth for August 1st. We are speaking with Bill Federer today, and his website, AmericanMinute.com, has uh, so much history. It's just a fantastic education. It would be great for homeschoolers. Or if you just want to uh, understand history a little bit better, um, checking out that site, it, you'll be really glad you did. We've been talking about the 9th of Av, which is a commemoration in Israel uh, that just sometimes it's in July, sometimes it's in August. Again, that's that lunar calendar, that uh, 360-day calendar. But um, just to summarize here, uh, we've been talking about Israel and some of her history. And then over the following centuries, Israel was invaded or occupied many, many more times. Uh, Lincoln wanted to go there. Twain did go there. Um, absolutely very, very interesting, and it makes 1948 that much more of a miracle. But, Bill, as I was looking through the Ninth of Av, um, over the last couple of years, I've been looking at some of the history of that. And my research says to me uh, that in March of 1492, King Ferdinand of Spain issued the decree that all Jews would have to leave Spain or be killed. The deadline was the 9th of Av, the same day Columbus set sail for America. Also, on the 9th of Av, 1914, World War One began uh, just a couple of days after the assassination of Archduke, Archduke Ferdinand uh, so, so much 20th century history, but I wanted to camp out a little bit here with, uh, Columbus. Uh, you had indicated that you had quite a bit of history about him, and I would love to hear what you have to say about that. So if you could fill us in that way. Sure. Well, uh, Marco Polo went to China in 1271 with his uncle Nicolo Polo and his father, or his father Nicolo and his uncle Matteo. And 5,600 miles from Venice, Italy, over to China. And they uh, worked for uh, Kublai Khan, the grandson of Genghis Khan. Mm. And uh, 
this young Marco Polo stayed over there for over a decade. And he learned Chinese. He even became an ambassador for Kublai Khan, who was Mongolian. And even there was a, a movie uh, with uh, how uh, the um, old Marco Polo like escorted uh, a woman who was going to be married to somebody and uh you know the it was a, a one of those classic movies that you know now nowadays the movies are all um what avengers and marvel stuff but mm-hmm. you know, a generation or so there would be movies that would have uh, real history in them and uh so so marco polo uh comes back to europe and there is a war between Venice and Genoa. So Italy was not Italy. It was a bunch of city-states, and they always fought. And Machiavelli uh, lived during this time and thought if one prince could control all of Italy, it would stop the infighting. And so he comes up with the ends, justifies the means. But you have these kingdoms fighting, and Marco Polo was captured, and he's made a prisoner in Genoa, Italy. And this is two centuries before the invention of the printing press. And so Marco Polo is telling his cellmate about his travels to China and to India. And his cellmate writes them down, and it becomes a bestseller. Of course, every copy is hand-copied, <laughs> um, but it's called Il Milliones, which means the million lies, because they thought it was all made up. It was like... You know, uh, Paul Bunyan's blue ox up in Minnesota that carved mm-hmm. out a valley and, <laughs> you know, and, um, uh, and so they talked about how there were naked holy men in India and, uh, you know, they, there were fields of blue cloth. Of course, the blue dye indigo came from India and they would dye the cloth and then stretch it out to, 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 you know, let it dry. Uh, he talked about China inventing gunpowder. Uh, he was really fascinated with burning rocks. The Chinese had coal. Hmm. That the Chinese invented the piñata. They invented paper currency. They invented paper from tree pulp. Well. They uh, invented a compass, a wheelbarrow. They invented gunpowder. So gunpowder was invented by the Chinese. And so they were technologically superior to Europe. And so his cellmate writes all this down. These books get hand copied. And where's Columbus born? Well, he's born uh, two centuries after Marco Polo in Genoa, Italy, where, where uh, Marco Polo had been a prisoner. So everybody in Genoa knew of Il Milione's, this book, and this grand con uh, on, in China on the other side of the world and, um, matter of fact, um, the, uh, Kublai Khan had asked Marco Polo to go back to Europe and bring some Christian missionaries. And so Marco Polo gets back and there's wars and, and he, uh, couldn't get Christian missions. He had two friars, Franciscan friars that were willing to go back with him, but they got scared crossing through an area where the Muslim Turks were conquering and they turned back and you thought, gee, how, how world history would have been different 
had you had an open door mm-hmm. to from the Chinese emperor Kublai Khan to bring Christianity over there. Uh, but but they they missed that door. Anyway, um, so Columbus grew up hearing about this Grand Khan, hearing about him talking about how he wanted Christian missionaries and how he, you know, had all this wealth and so forth. Um, but the Muslims by the 1400s had conquered Central Asia and cut off the land routes. And so that's when Columbus came up with the idea for a sea route. And he thought the earth was smaller in diameter um, than it really is. So you had way back in the, um, like the second century uh, BC, there was a Greek guy named Aristophanes. And he, uh, pretty fascinating, um, he had heard that in Aswan, Egypt, the sun cast no shadow down a well at noon on the summer solstice of June 21st. Yet at the exact moment in Alexandria, Egypt, there was a big column that cast a shadow of 7.2 degrees. And 7.2 degrees is 1 50th of a 360-degree circle. And it was known that the distance between Alexandria and Aswan was 500 miles. So all Aristophanes had to do was to multiply 500 miles times 50, and it would equal 25,000 miles. And that's just 99 miles off from the Earth's actual circumference. So here he is um, in the, uh, you know, third century or so B.C., and he came up with the exact circumference of the Earth. And um, so, so everybody knew the Earth was round, but... Aristophanes was Greek, and then the Greek area was conquered by the Muslims, and the uh, Arabs had a, a mile that was a little bit uh, different than the Roman mile. And so the Roman mile was evidently uh, shorter than the Egyptian mile, you know, Arab mile was longer. And anyway, so Columbus said, okay. Uh, we know the the circumference of the the world, but he's using uh, the wrong miles, and so he thinks the Earth is only nineteen thousand, what we would consider nineteen thousand miles around, rather than the twenty four thousand nine hundred one miles. So Columbus thought the Earth was smaller, and therefore he thought, well, we can get to to China by sailing west. We can meet Kublai Khan, and so. He gets to the Caribbean, and he thinks he made it to China. And he is on four voyages, um, but he's walking around Cuba with a letter from the King of Spain to the Grand Khan of China, and he's like, "I, I know he's here somewhere." <laughs> <laughs> and um, and he's trying to fit, you know, Japan into Florida. He's trying to fit wow. the Caribbean geography into what little he knows about the the Asian geography, and. Um, so uh, so Columbus takes his four voyages. Um, the first voyage, he does find land. He does find people, but he thinks he's in India. And so he names the people he meets Indians. Hmm. And the name stuck. Hmm. And, um, and so people wow. say, well, why didn't we call Native Americans Indians? Mm-hmm. Well, because Columbus thought he was in India. Well, why was Columbus trying to get to India? Well, because the Muslims cut off the land routes to India. Mm-hmm. And so everybody that hates Columbus needs to turn one chapter back in the history book and see that the very reason he set sail was because 
of Islamic jihad, of Islamic expansion, conquering Central Asia, cutting off the land routes. Oh. And um, well, and he said he would have known about um, like Leif Erikson's voyage, and that was quite a bit uh, before him, correct? And there were other voyages to uh, Newfoundland and places such as that. I mean, it's a wonder we ever got here at all, right? I mean, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. So on my American Minute that I deal with Columbus. Uh, one of the first stories is the Irish. So Attila the Hun was conquering Europe, and Rome had to pull all of its legions back from the frontiers to protect Rome itself. And so Britain had been a Roman colony for four centuries. Hmm. Julius Caesar was the first one that invaded, invaded the British Isles. And up into the 400s, uh, I mean, even Constantine was a general stationed in York, England, but and and then you know when the emperor Diocletian dies, he takes his army and he goes and he becomes the emperor. But so Rome uh, existed in in Britain, but when the Attila the Hun was conquering, they had to pull their legions back, so it left Britain unprotected. I tell the whole story of Saint Patrick, and so that's when uh, Saint Patrick uh, is kidnapped by some marauding bands. He's sold as a slave into Ireland. Um, he's there for six years, escapes. Um, and then he, as an adult, he goes back to Ireland as a missionary, and, and the whole island converts to Christianity. Fascinating story. Wow. Uh, and so these Irish would then send missionaries to other places. And the way they would do it is they would go down to the coast and get in a little dinghy boat and raise the sail, and wherever the wind blew them, they figured that was where the Holy Spirit wanted them to be a missionary. Mm. Imagine that. And, wow. uh, and so one of the guys... He raised his sail, and he was blown to the west, and nobody saw him for seven years. Wow. And it was St. Brendan. And he finally comes back, and he <laughs> describes what sounds like North America. Okay. The coast of Maine with big pine trees and the, 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 you know, the coast and the, the no beaches. And, and so that was 530 A.D. These Irish missionaries write about West of Ireland, there is some land. And then you got around 1000 AD is the Viking, Leif Erikson. And uh, the Vikings invented boats with low keels so they could go up every river in Europe and they would kill the men and take the women back with them. But a lot of the women were Christian. And so uh, when the men were off raiding again, the women would have to raise their little Viking kids and they would raise them to be Christian. And so after a couple of generations, uh, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark became Christian. Hmm. So these Christian Vikings were called Norsemen or Normans. He sails in the year 1000 west, and because he's banished, he uh, got on the wrong side of some other king. And so he settles Newfoundland, and, and it exists there for a couple of centuries until uh, the climate changes uh, and actually gets... Um, uh, there was a little ice age. And so for a couple of centuries, the world got colder before it got warmer. And, um, and so, uh, but during this time, you have these Vikings talk about this land that's west, west, west of Britain and west of Ireland. And Columbus would have known about that. Mm. And, um, and then you have, um, some of the other, uh, like a Swedish ship. In 1362, it sails to Greenland and then possibly sails to America. And there's something called the Kensington 
ruined stone, which is some stone. Some farmer had a tree turned over and the stone was in the roots of the tree and, um, and it was Swedish writing. And they identified it. And, gee, it looks like the same way the Swedes wrote back in 1362. So I think maybe the Swedes had settled something, but, you know, the Indians attacked them, and so they didn't follow up. Wow. But then you have 1492 with Columbus. And, and then an interesting chapter of Chinese. In 1421, there was a Ming emperor named Zhu Di. And Zhu Di had an admiral, Zheng He. And he had treasure fleets that he sent out around the world. And they uh, come back and they talk about, and this is 1421. And they talk about running into land that maybe sounds like the Americas. And um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so Columbus would have known these different things. And so he knew there was something to the West. He just had the diameter of the earth smaller than it really was. And, um, wow. but he thought he made it to India. But the reason he set sail in the first place was the Turks had conquered the Central Asia and cut off the land routes to India and okay. China. Okay, very interesting. This is Standard for the Truth. We're talking to Bill Federer about history, America, the world. I have, I'm wondering about the British Empire because my understanding has been over time that the Roman Empire was the largest ever, but now the British Empire, the sun never set, right? It spanned many um, time zones. The sun never set on the British Empire, and we're still reading in the 20th century about India and Africa. So where does uh, Britannia fit in here? How does that fit in from the Roman Empire to the British Empire? So you have uh, this study that I've done. I wrote a book called Change to Chains, and I document every single century of recorded human history, what kind of government there is, and all the kings and the kingdoms. So you have Nimrod, Tower of Babel, then Gilgamesh, King of Uruk, and then the Assyrians and Babylonians and the Egyptians, and <clears throat> and, and then you have uh, Cyrus of Persia, and it's conquered by Alexander the Great, and then it's conquered by the Romans. And these kingdoms keep getting bigger because with military advancements, the kings can kill more people. Right. And so the Roman Empire was the biggest empire the world had ever seen. And then Attila the Hun wipes it out. Uh, and then you have uh, the Hillas uh, uh, is the biggest empire until he's killed. Then you have a Byzantine empire. Mm. And then you have Islam comes along. And the Byzantine Romans were still using old-fashioned swords. Well, the stirrup for riding horses was a brand-new invention, and the Muslims got it first. And so they could be on horseback and, uh, and conquer. And so they had the biggest empire. And then the Vikings come along. They have the biggest empire because hmm. they have these boats with low keels. And the, the, the Vikings actually conquered Constantinople. When I went to Constantinople years ago, uh, Istanbul, we went to the Hagia Sophia, this church that was built hmm. in 527 A.D. It's a massive cavern of a church. And up in the balcony, they got the stone ra- you know, railing on the, on the balcony. And uh, it's got Viking graffiti carved in it. <laughs> And they have plexiglass over it so that you, you know, won't mess it up. But sure enough, they're sort of square type, you know, letters and, you know, who knows what it says. Probably Olaf was here. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, Sven was uh, but here. But the Vikings conquered that. And then you had Christian Vikings and they conquered Sicily and they drove the Muslims out of Italy. And, uh, but, uh, then you have, um, uh, Genghis Khan in the 1200s. He conquers from Korea to Hungary to Russia. Oh. Uh, his advantage was 
a stirrup riding horses, but a composite bow. So it's, uh, it can shoot as far as an English long bow, like a couple hundred yards, but it's a third of the size so they can use it on horseback. Mm. So this Mongolian army with like a half million of them, they'd come around and they could shoot 300 yards away. Their, their other army couldn't even reach them. Mm. And so the Mongols were unstoppable. And then, uh, after that, you had, uh, the Portuguese sailed around South Africa and made it to India and then the Spanish. So the Spanish had the, the world, the biggest, world's biggest empire in the 1500s. And then you have King Louis the Fourteenth of France, and he's got the biggest empire. But finally, in the 1700s, 1800s, Britain has the largest empire okay. that planet Earth had ever seen. Wow. Uh, they had ships where they uh, had masts, these big, long trees that they turned into masts. They got them from Maine. And then they had tar from a, a tar lake in Trinidad that they could paint the bottoms of the boat with it. And so the barnacles couldn't attach. And so these ships could be really fast and they conquered the world. Um, and then America decides we want to break away from this globalist one world government king. And so we flip it and, and make America uh, where the people are the king. Well, but um, very, very anyway, AmericaMinute.com is the website where I go through all my, my history. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's absolutely fascinating. The, the, also, for me, you know, with the British and the French having an empire of sorts, Austrian-Hungarian alliance, monarchies, old dynasties over in Europe, and then all of a sudden we have World War One. And was that the catalyst that just broke all this apart and, and how we got into the the 20th century uh, here? Because it just seems like all of a sudden things changed with World War One and Two. Really, the bloodiest century in history is my understanding. Yeah, you had... Um now, the, the French Revolution uh, had Jacobins, and there was a street named Jacob, and there were these anarchists. They were the Antifa BLM of the day, <laughs> and their idea was to tear everything down, and out of it will come something wonderful, a new world order. Hmm. But you first have to tear everything down. They didn't put a lot of thought into what was going to take its place. They just thought that somehow it's going to be better. And what happens is you tear things down, it's chaos, and then out of it rises a dictator, sure. a gang leader. And so so their idea is you, you create crises or you capitalize mm-hmm. on crises, and in the confusion, you consolidate power and set up a, a, a structured society that basically is a dictatorship. Well, this French Revolution concept uh, spread in the early 1800s and Karl Marx and others came up with the idea of having the fomenting crises between the proletariat and the bourgeois, the working class, the business owners, and, but it's creating crises. Uh, and then you have World War One, and because of all the treaties all the countries were in, it was a, a, a crisis that started a war that went global. And mm. um, and millions died, and then they redrew all these maps of Europe after World War One. Interesting, the uh, they thought that nationalism was the enemy. Hmm. Um, you know, German nationalists, right. and so they said, let's redraw the maps of Europe and the Middle East, and let's put competing groups inside of the countries. So there would intentionally be conflict, so that 
you'll never have the country united to have nationalism again. Oh, that's interesting. I never heard of that. So in the Middle East, they would put Sunnis and Shiites together into the same country. Well, they hate each other. Yeah, Yeah, but they'll be always fighting each other on the inside, and you'll never have a nationalism. They'll put, um, you know, the Orthodox and the the Muslims together. They'll put, you know, all these different groups, and uh, but it was sort of a built-in tension Mm -hmm. that they had because Mm -hmm. their enemy was nationalism. But um, wow, and there was no Iran or Iraq or modern day Israel at first, and then Israel comes along, and now they have a common enemy. Now they can say, "Oh, let's let's just turn our hatred on them." Bill, we only have a couple minutes left, so if if we want to just wrap that segment up. Um, that is absolutely fascinating that they had built in animosity in these groups. And then one wants a caliphate and, and, uh, you got the Arab Spring and all that sort of thing. That's a very, very interesting insight. Um, but Iran and Iraq, who created Iran and Iraq? Was it the UN? Yeah, so, so the, um, World War One, you had Britain and it was teamed up with Persia or Iran and Britain didn't have any oil. So in 1908, uh, Britain formed the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. You know it better as BP. <laughs> <laughs> and so Britain was teamed up with getting oil from Iran. And then uh, the Ottoman Empire teamed up with Germany. And so you had the German-Turkish treaties, uh, Ottoman-German treaties. And they had a Baghdad, Berlin-Baghdad Railroad. And so half of World War I took place in the Middle East. So after the war, they redrew the maps of Europe, and they also redrew the maps of the Middle East. And so one of these Arabs in, in Arabia and in Egypt that helped the British was um, named um, um, Aziz. Um, or Well, what was this? Uh, anyway, the name escapes me, but he has two sons. And the British put one of his sons in charge of Syria um, and, and the other son, Abdul, in charge of Jordan. And so Winston Churchill said, I put those people in power. I created those countries. I, I redrew the map. I put the, the people in power. And, um, and so then uh, Britain uh, created uh, modern-day Israel with a Balfour mm-hmm. Declaration. Right, right, yeah. And, um, but um, immediately the... Uh, the Arabs didn't like that, and so they said, well, let's give up a little land here, give up a little land there, give up a little land. And so it was this land for peace, but mm-hmm. then each time they say, well, if you give up a little land, there'll be peace. They give up land, there's no peace. Wow. Give up a little more land, and then there'll be peace. Right, right, right. Give up a little more, more land, and then there'll be peace. <laughs> and the beat goes on, right, Bill? Thank you so much for joining us. We have to wrap it up. If you're a history buff, absolutely go to AmericanMinute.com. Um share that site with people who want to know how to connect some dots my favorite one is layman's prayer revival evangelist dl moody pt barnum's greatest show on earth and the third great awakening that is an american minute with bill federer uh so thank you so much uh bill we really appreciate you uh visit standupforthetruth.com and sign up for our weekly podcast digest Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Thanks for joining us.